Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. There's a big garbage patch floating in the Pacific, and it includes tiny pieces of plastics or microplastics. And this patch is only getting bigger each year. Coming up, we'll hear from a Yukon researcher about the growing problem and find out how microplastics are impacting Long Island Sound. Plastic can last hundreds of years, but most of us think we're being environmentally responsible when we chuck anything made of plastic into the recycle bin. But how do we know that plastic item will be recycled? Are we doing it all wrong? We'll check in with the State Energy and Environmental Protection Agency, or DEEP, and a recycling coordinator from the city of Middletown about what should and shouldn't be recycled. How municipalities handle recycling is undergoing a big change. That's because China, once the U.S.'s biggest customer of scrap material, is no longer taking recyclables. Now, why did China make this decision? And what will be the impact on recycling here at home? You can join our conversation, the number 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. And as always, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us now with more is Bob Tita, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. He focuses on manufacturing. Bob, welcome to the show. Good morning. So most listeners uh, probably don't think about where the recycling goes once it's picked up uh, each week. Can you briefly describe to us what the process is from a municipality to a trash hauler to possibly on its way to China? Uh, Typically, a a collector would take uh, the recycled items to uh, a processing center where they would be uh, separated into uh, paper and plastic, cardboard, that sort of thing. And then they would be shipped out to uh, uh, a, 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 pro- a processor or a broker that would sell them to um, uh, a user who would, who would then recycle them. And China was the biggest customer of U.S. scrap material. So what changed? Uh, China has been had been collecting uh, uh, a lot of uh, recycled material from the United States for years and years. And uh, beginning this year, uh, the country put some very stringent uh, standards on how much contamination it would accept in the recycled items that it it uh, imported from the U.S. Those uh, standards were very tough for the uh, U.S. Uh, waste hauling and recycling industry to comply with, and so it effectively uh, shut off the uh, the export of recycled items to China. Now, Bob, do we know why this year, if China's been accepting these items uh, for a while, uh, you know, has anything to do with uh, the Trump administration's uh, tariffs, for one? It, it doesn't appear that the two are, are directly related. Of course, it it uh, probably doesn't help either. Uh, there's there's been a, a you know a, a a climate of of uh, uh, between the two countries that that uh, has been tense all year this year because of uh, trade issues. But 
But the uh, the issue with recycling and the, the quality of recyclables has been going on for uh, a couple of years now, and, and China had been signaling for uh, some time, even before the uh, the broader issues of trade came up, that it, it was uh, not happy with the quality of the material it was importing. You mentioned uh, contaminants earlier, so there's more trash that has infiltrated these recyclables? Well, it's it's kind of a combination of, of everything. Uh, you know, obviously, it's some some of it is trash, uh, things that get uh, mixed in with with recyclable material. Well, uh, and and a lot of it is just a sort of contamination. So liquids, um, food waste that gets mixed in with with paper, uh, and and just um, uh, ruins the the paper or the cardboard, uh, that sort of thing. Um, on the phone with us is Bob Tita, reporter for the Wall Street Journal, focusing on manufacturing. As we look into why uh, China this year has stopped accepting recyclables from the U.S., we're curious about the impact on municipalities in our country. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. So, Bob, uh, the question now is what's happening with uh, a lot of this material that was being shipped over to China? Uh, what are municipalities, specifically on the West Coast, doing about it? And is this going to be an issue as it trickles over to the East Coast? Uh, it, it's, it's impacted the whole country uh, because there are, just like all sort of commodity items, there are, uh, there's a pricing uh, sort of schedule for everything. And, and when one part of the market gets out of whack, in, in, in this case, uh, an oversupply uh, occurs, it, it drives down prices. So what's happened is that... Um, you know, waste haulers, uh, uh, processing centers that used to sell uh, material are now actually paying somebody to, to haul stuff away or to take it off their hands. So it was uh, something that made a lot of money, but now, as you mentioned, uh, paying to take it to landfills. So uh, these companies are now taking a hit. And then how are we seeing this trickle down to municipalities in terms of, of are, are fees going to be going up for residents? Uh, it's, it's possible. Uh, there are many different sort of pricing mechanisms. Uh, and, and for a number of years, uh, a lot of recycling was a lot of recyclables were collected, and the uh, um, the cost of that collection was was offset by the sale of the items. And and now uh, both the, the the trash haulers as well as uh, the the companies that process the recyclables are coming back to municipalities and saying that that we have no uh, way of recovering our costs. Um, so we're going to have to ask you to, uh, to to share in that cost of, of collecting and processing those items, and that's uh, uh, occurring, and, and that will come back uh, to residents unless the municipality just mm-hmm. decides to, to cover the cost itself. Now, in terms of uh, in this country, uh, as more of this uh, recyclables aren't able to be shipped out and are, are headed over to landfills. What about some other ways of, of I guess, you know, uh, taking mixed plastic, I think that's the term, um, and either converting those to types of fuel? Is that something that um, that might be happening more now? Uh, yes. I You know, there, there are some 
I think that that will force more uh, uh, sort of research and development of alternative uses of some of this material. Um, you know, it's it's uh, it's not all going to the landfill. There's there's an awful lot of it around. Uh, it does get used, uh, but the value of it is is so low. Um, and and the good thing about that is is that that people that can do alternative things with with the material are, are getting it very cheaply. So, in the way of plastics and and uh, some of the uh, um, you know conversion of, of recycled plastics to uh, chemicals and things like that, uh, those companies are able to get that that recycled plastic for for almost nothing. Mm. This is where we live. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. David's calling from Farmington. David, go ahead with your question or comment. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Uh, I have two questions. You know, China last year took 1.3 million tons, apparently, of recyclable plastic. And this year they approved only for like 5,000 tons or so. So where are all these recyclable materials sitting right now and then how long before the whole system implodes i mean mm-hmm. clearly we're still manufacturing plastics with our food products and every other product and we're still recycling every week so where are they being piled up and before how long the whole system implodes good question david uh bob do you want to take that one well i i, I you know there is some of it is Sitting in warehouses, as I said, some of it is is being recycled domestically. Um, it's it's. Um, I mean, it's. I think the, the the real problem is when you have a glut of this, uh, it just drives down the the value of of it to the uh, point where it's very difficult to justify collecting it uh, and covering the cost of collecting it when there's no value uh, uh, attached to it. And we know that, again, that uh, you, uh, China was uh, the U.S.'s biggest customer of this uh, scrap material. Um, what are some of the other countries that are now accepting it if, if China's not? Uh, well, I, you know, there, there are countries that, that sort of have always accepted it. Uh, it's just a matter of maybe perhaps they're, they're accepting more uh, other Asian countries uh, you know, we've we've heard of uh, uh, the recycling industry trying to, to put more material into places like India, uh, Vietnam, Indonesia, uh, generally developing countries that have uh, don't have um, a lot of their own uh, plastics or maybe don't have very good recycling programs, uh, import this material and and uh, and then recycle it for into you know new cardboard, new new plastic, so forth. And then one more question for you, Bob. Uh, again, this ban from China. Any um, uh, any kind of uh, movement on whether this could be lifted, or if uh, uh, the U.S. gets its act together and maybe is uh, being more discerning in what things they're sending over uh, to be recycled, because you mentioned the contaminants earlier. I, I think that's the the sort of way forward in the recycling industry uh, and the and the waste haulers in the United States have 
been working harder at at uh, driving contamination out of their processes, uh, producing cleaner loads, less contaminants, uh, in the hope that that uh, uh, China will will uh, perhaps uh, revise its standards and start taking this material again. Uh, recyclers have told me that that uh, there's still a demand for this material in China, and and that uh, you know if if you can produce clean loads uh, without uh, the contamination, uh, that that the Chinese will take it, and that they that they do need it. So um, it's 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 going to take a while, but but the. Uh, uh, the need is still there, so that's what's what's giving the recycling industry hope that uh, some of this could be worked out down down the road. Bob Tita is a reporter for the Wall Street Journal. He focuses on manufacturing. We're going to tweet out links to his recent stories at Where We Live. Bob, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, what can and cannot be recycled? You might be surprised. We're going to hear from the state environmental agency and a recycling coordinator for one of the cities here in Middletown. And we want to hear from you. Join the conversation. 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. How often do you recycle items in your home? And what are those items? Join our conversation, 860-275-7266. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Single stream recycling makes recycling easy when multiple items like paper, plastic, and glass are all collected together. But do you know what should and should not go into your recycling bin? Joining us now uh, to help us figure that out is Kim O'Rourke. She's Recycling Program Coordinator for the City of Middletown. Kim, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Also with us is Cheryl Baldwin. She's an environmental analyst with the State Department of Energy and Environmental Protection and the lead on Connecticut's What's In, What's Out Recycling Initiative. Cheryl, welcome to where we live. Thank you for having me. So, Kim, I mentioned that you work for the city of Middletown. So when someone is living in Middletown and they're putting out their uh, recycling bin each week, um, tell us what they're able to put in there and where does it go after it's collected? Sure. So we follow the um, Recycle CT guidelines. They have a great uh, website that has what's in, what's out. And we uh, collect single stream or mixed recycling all together. So your paper items and your containers can all go together. So it can range from, I mean, it's a lot of items to list, but it all your mixed paper, white and colored paper, junk mail, envelopes, cardboard, box board, so cereal boxes, all those items can go in, milk cartons, juice boxes, the soup um, boxes, like soy milk containers, that sort of stuff can all go in. Um, And that can be joined with your uh, plastic bottles and containers, like yogurt containers and plastic tubs, along with their lids and uh, aluminum cans uh, and uh, aluminum foil if it's clean, uh, foil can pie plates if they're clean. Um, so, Kim, that's a broad range. You mentioned a lot of items. So, I did. Uh, if people aren't rinsing those out, is that a big no-no? Is that something that cannot be recycled later on? Right. We need everything, especially now with the, the stricter standards that you were just talking about. The items do need to be rinsed clean. Any food 
particles or items will contaminate the, the whole load. So it is important that items are rinsed out. We got a tweet from Brian uh, who writes, a friend recently told us not to, quote, wish cycle, meaning toss any and all plastic and cardboard and paper into the bin and assume it's all supposed to go in there. Is that something that you feel is more common these days that people, they think, oh, well, this is recyclable and they just throw it in, not thinking about if that's indeed something that will end up being recycled down the road? Yes. I think a lot of people do do wish recycling, thinking that they wish it was recyclable, and so they just put it in, hoping that it gets recycled. And maybe in the past we could handle that, but now we can't. People really need to pay attention. I I did um, give you a long list of items that are recyclable, but not everything is. So it's important to know exactly what is and what isn't, because that wishful recycling is not a good thing. It does not help recycling at all. Uh, Cheryl Baldwin's with us again. She's the lead on the state's What's In, What's Out Recycling Initiative. Um, I'm curious, uh, Cheryl, what are some things that people are putting in their bins that they shouldn't be? That's a great question. Um, And I'm going to clarify the sort of the concept of what is recyclable versus what is acceptable. So we have a lot of materials that can be recycled. However, not everything can go in the bin in terms of the Connecticut Mixed Recycling Program. So the list that Kim provided, all of those things can go in the bin. There are other things, though, that cannot. Plastic bags, great example. But are they recyclable? You bet. But you bring them back to retailers. Textiles, another great example. Does your clothing and old shoes need to be in the bin? Definitely not. However, Goodwill, Salvation Army, other thrifts um, will take textiles for reuse and recycling. Um, Other materials that are not helpful, shredded paper, any polystyrene, which is commonly uh, known as styrofoam. All of those uh, materials are not acceptable in the program. We were talking with Kim, who works in Middletown. So tell us about the work that you're doing, Cheryl. How uniform is this recycling process from town to town? So our attempt with the What's In, What's Out campaign, which is run by the department in partnership with the Recycle CT Foundation, was uh, to try to make it as easy as possible for residents to understand what goes in the bin and what doesn't. And this is before the China um, sort or the... um, the tighter standards that Bob was talking about. And we met with all the MRFs, all the materials recovery facilities, the facilities that process our residential recyclables, and we came up with a universal list to try to make it easier and make it standard across the state for everybody to follow the same rules. Mm-hmm. And so we are um, moving towards uh, trying to communicate that information to not only residents but all the municipalities across the state. And you can see Middletown is an early adopter. We're going to tweet out and share on our web uh, site, WMPR.org slash where we live, that list as well as a story that uh, Connecticut Public Radio reporter Patrick Scahill did uh, later last year. Um, Now, something that we were having a a conversation about in our newsroom is, can you put in that pizza box? What's the standard, Cheryl? So um, when we went through the list of all the different products, we asked facilities, what is detrimental to your staff or unsafe for your staff? What's detrimental to the equipment? And also what reduces the value of your commodity? Because they're not dealing with trash in these facilities, they're commodities. And uh, we started with cardboard, specifically pizza boxes, and they all agreed they want their cardboard. They want, they want our pizza boxes. However, they don't want food. They don't want cheese, no crust. 
and they're asking us to take out any liners. Mm. Now, if we're hearing about how China has gotten uh, stricter about uh, how much of the recyclables in the U.S. it accepts because of contaminants, I mean, would the grease in the pizza box? I mean, I don't. I'm quite. I guess I'm confused about the trash hauler. They'll take it away, but then where does it end up? Is it eventually going to end up in the landfill? So, in terms of first, uh, it's important for everybody to know that there's no landfills in Connecticut. So all of our municipal solid waste is incinerated. So while there's national news going on, it doesn't. It's it's a little different in Connecticut. Um, in terms of contamination, contamination isn't necessarily grease per se. They're dealing with huge volumes of material. So when we had a, a, a municipal solid waste characterization study done a couple of years ago, we not only look at what type of materials are still in the waste stream, but we decided to look at the recycling stream and found out that 19% of the materials coming into our facilities is a contaminant. That doesn't mean that um, it's pizza boxes with oil or grease. What it means is there's things that cannot be sold as a commodity to be made into a new product is coming through the line. And sadly, a lot of those materials are beautiful recyclables, but they're in bags and they look like trash. Mm -hmm. So they're not recovered. So people need to stop bagging their recyclables. Cheryl Baldwin's environmental analyst with the State Department of Energy and Environmental Protection and is the lead on Connecticut's What's In and What's Out Recycling Initiative. Also with us is Kim O'Rourke, Recycling Program Coordinator for the City of Middletown. Kim, earlier we were talking about uh, this impact uh, being felt uh, mostly now, I believe, on the western side of the country about uh, China's ban on taking uh, U.S. Uh, scrap material. But I'm curious in terms of the fact that there are less places uh, to send recycling is this something that that we will see and, and hitting our pocketbooks in terms of the fees passed down uh, to residents? I think you probably will. I, I, I know in Middletown we have felt it already. I think probably any municipality that is involved in recycling, whether curbside or at their transfer station, if they haven't had a cost increase yet, they probably soon will be getting one. So for us in Middletown, we had a new contract the end of last year, and that's when things changed for us. So whereas for probably decades, we had not paid for recycling, we had actually gotten money for recycling, uh, we are now paying a significant amount for our recyclables, and that's new, mm -hmm. and uh, it, is, it is a concern for sure. Uh, you can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Maybe you have a question about something that uh, you've been putting in your recycle bin. Uh, we've got two experts on the line. That number again, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. Um, now, when we were hearing um, Cheryl talking about how people are putting um, recyclables in plastic bags, and then that's ending up in the bin, and then the recycling uh, companies can't use that, you know, is there something to be said for how the trend has been this uh, mixed recycling or single stream recycling all coming together in one bin? Should we now go back to, you know, one week residents put out the paper, one week they put out the glass? Will that help us be careful about what we're putting in the bins? What's your take on that, Cheryl? It's a great question. I think um, nationally people are now asking those same questions. You have some communities that are looking at dual stream again. You have some communities that are taking out certain materials that are causing um, challenges on a, a mixed recycling line. In Connecticut, it's unclear what's going to happen. It's a little bit different in Connecticut in that we have mandatory recycling. 
So um, people are required to recover that material, whether there's a fee associated with it or not. How that impacts us, it's unclear. Um, I don't know anybody. There are communities that still uh, collect dual stream in Connecticut. Town of Brantford is definitely one. Um, I don't know if I think there may be another. And uh, so those folks are probably less impacted Mm. than folks that decided to choose uh, a mixed recycling direction. Now, you mentioned, Cheryl, Connecticut mandates recycling of certain materials. Tell us more about that. And how does you'd mentioned it can complicate uh, in terms of uh, this uh, uh, single stream and and, and dual uh, recycling. Well, there are many communities in other parts of the country that are saying we're no longer collecting or as the you know headlines say, we're now beginning to landfill. Well, that's not an option in Connecticut. Um, we're staying in great uh, a lot of conversations with our facility operators to make things, sure that things are moving forward and that things are not stockpiling, making sure that they're in compliance. And at the same time, uh, loads can't necessarily be rejected because um, they can't take anymore, but they can charge fees. And so our system is definitely set up um, differently because of those those laws. Well, we're all familiar with the three R's, reduce, reuse, recycle. Uh, most of us are just paying, to that, paying attention to the last part, recycle, and then we're finding out uh, possibly we're putting in the wrong things in the bin. But what about the focus on reduce and reuse? Kim, I'll start with you as a recycling program coordinator for the city of Middletown. What are some other programs and initiatives that you're trying to try to get residents to think a, a little bit more about the things that they're purchasing and how they might be reusing versus just putting it all in the bin? Right, exactly. I mean, that's really our focus in Middletown is we're trying to get people to think more about what they're purchasing and do they really need it? And will it just end up in the in the garbage and in the recycling right after they purchase it or soon afterwards? So some of the things that we're doing, a really fun event that we're having to bring this um, idea of re- reuse and repair to light is we're going to have a, a repair cafe on uh, Sunday, September 23rd, and it's the first one in Middletown. They're actually fairly common all over the world. Um, As far as I'm aware, there's only one other uh, town in Connecticut that does it, and that's up in Mansfield. So this will be our first one. We're encouraging people to come with an item that is broken and needs to be fixed, and we'll have experts on hand to talk about repair and help them fix their items. So we're very excited about that. Does some initiative like that or an event, does that um, help uh, decrease well, those days that you see in your town or city where like one day a year the town or city will uh, collect the hazardous things, the things that they don't, people don't know what to do with? Is this a way to kind of maybe try to reduce some of that? Well, it may not reduce the household hazardous waste, but we're hoping it'll reduce the bulky waste. Um, we we do have our household hazardous waste program, and we actually do do education to try to teach people about organic lawn care and not using toxic toxic products so that they have less to throw away. Um, but we also have the bulk waste collection, which I think every town has, and it's extremely expensive to do that. And um, if people can learn to repair their items instead of throwing them away, that would make a huge difference with the bulk waste. You can join our conversation on Where We Live, 860-275-7266. Peter's calling from North Haven. Peter, go ahead. Hi. Yes, I have uh, noticed next to where I live the two businesses, like a grocery store and a bar, they throw everything in there. It doesn't matter if it's appliances or bottles and cans and a uh, lot of it, you know, and uh, 
or yard waste or uh, lots of boxes at the like the grocery store, and it, it goes in the same trash collector, and they haul it away. And I'm just wondering where it can't be going to recycling. So why are they allowed to throw away so much when um, it just seems like a waste? It's it's contaminating the environment, and I'm just wondering why there isn't some law preventing so much good recyclable materials to be recycled. Peter, great question. Uh, Cheryl from uh, Deep. Uh, so he wants to know, are, you know, should businesses, are businesses required to recycle? What are the uh, the laws there? They are required to recycle. So Peter, this is great. What you should do is, if you're concerned, you can actually call the department and you can um, make a an anonymous tip or you can um, ask for somebody to come out and inspect whether or not they are managing their materials properly. And recycling is required by all persons in Connecticut. It doesn't state that only residents or only businesses, um, everybody, regardless of what kind of a, uh, a structure they, they live in, reside in, or work in, are required to recycle a certain um, materials, which basically includes bottles, cans, paper, etc. So those folks are non-compliant. That material is definitely probably headed to the incinerator, and they are breaking the law. Mike from Old Line, what's your question? Hi, thank you so much for helping out on this topic today. You know, I just, um, there's always conflicting guidelines about what can and can't be recycled, and when you try to generalize stuff, I have the guidelines from the CT Recycle, you know, web pages, and it, as well as what you guys said today about yogurt containers are always recyclable. They say that there too, but a lot of them are made of plastics that are not accepted, um, you know, beyond number one and two, which is, I believe, all this exceptions. They're made out of fours and fives, um, which, uh, you know, aren't taken, I believe. Is that correct? Cheryl, can you answer uh, his question? I can. So first, start ignoring the numbers. The numbers are not going to help you. Those numbers were developed for the plastics industry and part of the materials economy. So as consumers, we need to think about it in terms of tubs, cups, jugs, and other types of containers, bottles, jars. So, yes, yogurt containers are acceptable. Uh, Chris is calling from Killingworth. Chris, go ahead with your question. Hi, thanks for taking the call. My question is about plastic bags. So I know that the plastic bags from the grocery stores go back to the grocery stores. But what about the plastic pouches that come from Amazon that have the recycling emblem on them or the manila envelopes that have the bubble wrap lining? What about those? Good question, Chris. <laughs> that is a good question. So if you have um, like a, an envelope with bubble wrap and the whole envelope is plastic, that is definitely part of the plastic film recycling program, the Connecticut wrap program that you can bring back to retailers. But if it has paper on the outside with bubble wrap on the inside, that should go into the trash. As far as other containers or other type of insulation or things within a cardboard box that came to your home, ignore recycling arrows. They're not necessarily going to help you. You need to understand whether or not it's a container or um, if it's a, a paper product that is acceptable. And you can type it right into the Recycle CT Wizard and it should answer your question. And if not, ask them to add the materials and that you want a response to your question, and you'll get a response. We're going to fit in one more listener question before we head to break. Scott, you're calling from Wallingford. What's your question for oh. our guests? Oh, hi. Quick question on uh, continuing the vein of recyclable acceptability. 
consider orange juice containers, juice containers, milk, half and half, those things that look like they're paper, but they seem to have waxy covering on them. How about them? Those are, I would call them cartons. So your juice cartons, milk cartons, et cetera, are all acceptable. Uh, before we head to break, I, I wanted to find out a little bit more about um, the other alternative, and that's composting. Uh, is this something that uh, more uh, residents are doing? And if they want to learn more about what are the things you can be can be composting, uh, where can they go? I'll start with you, Cheryl. Um, so that's a very broad question, so I'm going to let you start with Kim on that okay. one. <laughs> Kim, go ahead, from uh, the city of Middletown. <laughs> I, I can be very specific on that. If you're interested in composting, we're having a program on October 2nd to teach people how to compost. It's going to be at the Middletown Senior Center at 7 p.m. It's going to be a great program um, for people who are beginners and experts. We'll have cover the whole range of things. And we're also doing a community compost sale. And that's online, um, and it's open to anybody. So if you're interested in getting a compost bin or rain barrel, those are available now. And that is one thing that we're trying to encourage is more residents to compost at home because that does help reuse an item, organic food waste, that's very valuable, and use it yourself. Um, it's a great way to pull, pull food waste out of the waste stream. So those are two things that we're having right now. And other towns do do events like that, too. If you're not close to Middletown, you can check with your town to see if they're doing something like that. So Cheryl Baldwin from Deep, I lied. I do have one more question for you. Chris on Facebook wants to know about paint and light bulbs. Where do those go? I hear a lot about this paint care program in Connecticut. But uh, once we went to one of those big box stores and they didn't accept the old paint. So where's a good place for paint to go? So in terms of um, unused paint, you can go to paintcare.org. They have a page just for Connecticut, and it lists all participating retailers in Connecticut, such as True Value stores, Sherwin-Williams stores, um, and other stores. Uh, I would say that the larger sort of Lowe's Home Depot, I don't believe are participating in Connecticut. But you do also have municipal transfer stations are sometimes participating and if you have like a half gallon that's um, partial, it has a, a lot of paint left over, you might try Habitat for Humanity stores will sometimes take it for reuse before it's recycled because somebody might be able to purchase it and reuse it in some way. As far as the light bulb, if you are talking about an incandescent, just a regular old bulb, those can go in the trash. As far as um, fluorescents, uh, those should be brought back to household hazardous waste events. I want to thank Cheryl Baldwin, environmental analyst with Deep and Lead on Connecticut's What's In and What's Out Recycling Initiative. Again, we've tweeted out information about that program at Where We Live and on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Cheryl, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Also, Kim O'Rourke, Recycling Program Coordinator for the City of Middletown. Kim, we thank you. Thank you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we're going to learn more about microplastics. So how are they affecting marine life? That's well, more after the break.
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. There's been debate over how big is the pile of trash that's floating in the Pacific Ocean. But scientists do do know more about what's in it. Much of the Pacific garbage patch includes tiny pieces of plastic known as microplastics. How does this impact ocean life, even our food supply? Joining us now with more on that is Evan Ward. He's professor and head of Department of Marine Sciences at UConn. He's joining us from a studio at Duke University. Evan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lucy. It's great to be here. So some listeners may have seen pictures of what's uh, been called the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. But when we talk about plastic in the ocean, what exactly are we talking about, Evan? Yeah, well, it's it's really an umbrella term for many, many different types of materials. So if you think about macroplastics and microplastics, you're talking about many different sizes. So microplastics usually are defined starting at about five millimeters in size, which is uh, sort of on a range of a quarter of an inch or so, um, all the way down to sub-micrometer particles. So you're talking about a broad range of sizes. And then you're also talking about um, many different types of polymers. So we really can't put microplastics in one neat Pigeonholes. So you're talking about polystyrene, polypropylene, polycarbonate, nylon, polymethylmethacrylate, just to name a few. And then on top of that, you have different shapes. So you have round microplastics. You have microplastics that are jagged in nature. You have microplastics that are fibrous, so they're very long and thin. So uh, it's very complex when you're starting to talk about these different types of microplastics and trying to determine what their impact is on marine life. Mm. Evan, earlier we were talking about the things that people uh, believe um, can be recycled or accepted by their local uh, recyclers. Uh, And I'm curious, when we're talking about all these different uh, items that fall under macroplastics and microplastics, uh, when we think about household items uh, that are contributing to this, is, is it the plastic bags, the plastic wrap that we use? Yeah, so microplastics come from two major sources. One is primary microplastics, and so those are small plastic materials that are manufactured in that size. An example would be the microplastics that are often put in face washes and other personal care products. Um, In Connecticut, those have been banned, and actually the federal government banned those as well, Um, and I believe the ban goes in effect next year or the year after that. So they're primary microplastics, but most of the microplastics in the ocean come from the degradation of macroplastics. And you, most people would have a feeling for this. You're walking along the beach in a hot sunny day and you come across maybe an old milk uh, bottle or an old water bottle and you might step on it and you hear that crunch and you see a bunch of powdery material fly into the air. All of those particles will be microplastics. Mm. You've studied microplastics in Long Island Sound. Tell us about your research. And when we think about the sound over the years, uh, it being more polluted than it is today, um, how far have we come in terms of reducing plastic pollution? Yeah, there's there's really um, not good information about that. Um, I think that uh, the amount of plastic that's entering the oceans in general is increasing, and my guess would be that it's increasing in Long Island Sound as well. And that's due to mismanaged plastic waste, and it's coming mostly from the terrestrial environment. So our uses, um, 
plastic milk bottles and water bottles and bags, etc. I think most of your listeners would agree that if you drive down any major highway in Connecticut and you look off to the side of the road, you'd be hard-pressed to find a, a stretch, you know, a 100-yard stretch or so without some type of plastic material lying on the side. So all of that eventually, um, or a lot of it, ends up going into our streams and waterways and ends up in the sound. In terms of the research you're doing uh, and how uh, research is funding, is that an issue in this country that we, we don't know a lot about the um, impact of microplastics on ocean life uh, because there's not a lot of funding for it? Yeah, that's a very good point. Uh, the Europeans are much more ahead of us than uh, we are here in the U.S. They have uh, put in a lot more money to study microplastics, and most of the literature, scientific literature regarding microplastics is coming out of uh, Europe and uh, China and some other countries. In the U.S., yes, we, we don't have much funding to study microplastics. Uh, my research right now is funded by NOAA, and we're taking a look at the number of microplastics that are in oysters and also in mussels. And then we're uh, not only looking at the total number, but uh, referring back to something I said earlier, mm -hmm. we're looking at the exact type of microplastics. What size are they? What shape are they? And what polymer type are they? And um, what we're hoping to do is discover which types of microplastics are more likely ingested by bivalves. Because bivalves are very good at capturing a lot of different particles in the environment, natural particles as well as synthetic particles. But they're also very good at what's called particle selection. And so although they capture a lot of material, they don't eat it all. And so they end up spitting out a lot of microplastics before it's ingested. And so we're looking at those aspects trying to determine which types of microplastics are the most problematic for bivalves. Should we be worried about um, the amount of microplastics we're, we're eating? Uh, I don't think so. Not at this point. If you're referring to in bivalves, yeah. Well, if we if we eat seafood and then yeah, mm -hmm. how much of that do we have to worry about? Yeah. Well, if, to put it in perspective, um, if you look at our work and you look at the work that's in the literature, there's only been uh, few microplastics found in individual bivalves. So our work, the number of microplastics range from about zero, often you find animals with no microplastics in them, to three or four microplastic particles. Again, sometimes they're very small, sometimes they're long, they're fibrous in nature. If you compare that to the amount of microplastics we all ingest every day, just in our food, mm -hmm. just in our everyday life where microplastics from our clothing rain down into our coffee cup and onto our food, uh, it's comparatively small. Uh, so, for example, microplastics have been found in sea salt at pretty high concentrations, actually. Microplastics have been found in bottled water, that's no surprise, uh, in beer, in honey. So microplastics have been found in a lot of food sources. And so from what we see so far, I don't think it's a big concern yet here in 2018 with regards to the number of microplastics you're ingesting when you ingest an oyster or a mussel. Um, David, as a, a listener that wanted to um, ask this question, um, he writes, only 3% of ocean plastics are floating. What do we know about the impact of the rest that's sinking to the ocean floor? Do you have any um, response to that, Evan? 
Yeah, very little. Um, that is one of the mysteries uh, and um, what we think is happening to that microplastics is that it's being uh, incorporated into what are called uh, heteroaggregations or aggregations of organic and inorganic material, natural material, that then um, form larger particles that then sink. Uh, and, and we're not really sure what's going on when it all sinks. Um, so that is a very good question, and I wish I had a better answer, but we really don't know a lot about that right now. Evan Ward is professor and head of the Department of Marine Sciences at UConn. He's joining us today from the studios at Duke University as we talk about the impact of plastic uh, on our environment, specifically in our oceans, our rivers. I wanted to bring into the conversation Judy Preston, Connecticut Outreach Coordinator for the Long Island Sound Study. Judy, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, So um, in terms of the work that you and your colleagues are doing, when we look at plastics and how it's impacting Long Island Sound, what can you tell us? Well, we certainly know that there is plastic in Long Island Sound, and uh, much of that is coming from our observation of what is being collected in uh, events that are coming up, similar to what's coming up on the 15th of this month, the uh, International Coastal Cleanup Day, where we're finding a lot of plastics. And we actually have quantified some of those plastics for, for Long Island Sound in terms of all the materials that at least wash ashore that we can see. Mm. You know, lately we've been hearing uh, conversations in communities about whether uh, there should be a ban on plastic straws. Um, Some uh, towns and cities might take up a ban on plastic bags, but that certainly is not uh, universal. So in terms of the work that you're doing, I mean, is it more about just raising awareness of how people are using plastic and and making sure that it doesn't go out uh, into uh, the environment, uh, the things that they're throwing out? Yes, exactly. It's we, we have a uh, social media campaign that we're, we have launched a seven-week period that started in August, and it's going to end uh, just before the, the 15th for the, the international uh, cleanup. And it's really designed, we're, we're asking people to don't trash Long Island Sound. That's the hashtag that we're using. And the idea is a straw is an easy example because most people who go to a restaurant will receive a straw automatically. And a plastic straw is used once and then thrown out and becomes potentially part of the waste stream in Long Island Sound. So it's a, it's a good example, as are plastic bags, uh, but it's just the beginning of asking people to take a look at how much material that we use made out of plastic that ends up in places like Long Island Sound. Uh, Gary is calling from Greenwich. Gary, we have a couple of minutes. Go ahead quickly with your question. Uh, yes, hi. Uh, I have been working on trying to establish a ban on the sale and outdoor display of Mylar balloons. I find that um, they are displayed out on mailboxes and things like that and get loose and wind up in Long Island Sound. Um, I am a boater, and uh, just this past weekend, within a two-hour period just locally around Greenwich, I picked up six Mylar balloons and two, uh, two latex balloons. Um, this is a problem not only for marine life, but if it gets sucked up into a boat engine, it can burn out the engine. My state senator, Scott France, is a pilot. He says he encounters... Mylar balloons up in the air where they also can get sucked into an engine and cause a problem. Uh, The helium that escapes destroys the ozone layer. And I have also heard that um, if a mylar balloon encounters a high-tension electrical line, it can blow out an entire power grid. Mm. So I'm, I'm hoping to get support all up and down the state as well as from New York State. 
uh, so we can keep Long Island Sound free of those Mylar balloons. Thank you, Gary, for your call. Uh, Judy Preston with a Long Island Sound study. You know, we were we were talking about um, plastic straws, but the Mylar balloons, that is concerning to hear that they are um, out there in the sound and causing a lot of problems. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that Mylar may behave similar to a plastic bag in terms of uh, being mistaken for um, uh, food, for particularly by turtles, which becomes very problematic for them, as you could imagine. Um, I want to go back to Evan Ward again, professor and, and head of Department of Marine Sciences at UConn. Uh, you mentioned earlier that there is a ban now on microbeads, uh, which is good, but is that low-hanging fruit? And when we look at policy, what should be changing in our country uh, when we think about uh, the amount of plastic ending up in our water? Yeah, that certainly is low-hanging fruit. Um, I think there's a few other low-hanging fruits as well. The mylar and balloons are one of those. Um, plastic grocery bags would be another. Straws would be another. The real challenge is going to come in trying to um, manage water bottles, uh, plastic uh, jugs, uh, all the other types of materials that are made from plastics. And And to be clear, right, the Plastics are uh, something that have made our life better in many ways. So we will never be able to get rid of all the plastics, or should we get rid of all the plastics? It keeps our cars lighter, uh, more fuel efficient, etc. What we need to do is work towards managing those plastics much better than we do now and making sure that they do not enter our streams and waterways and uh, nearshore waters because... Um, yeah, that's when they start causing a problem. Well, Evan Ward, again, uh, thank you for joining us. I know you were out of state uh, for this conversation, but we appreciate you giving us some of your time. Sure. Thank you for having me. Also, Judy Preston, Connecticut Outreach Coordinator for the Long Island Sound Study. We're going to um, have tweet out some links to some of those events that, Judy, that you mentioned. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Uh, today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Special thanks to Lily Tyson. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Learn more about the show, wmpr.org slash where we live. You can also download our podcast. I'm Lucy Dalpathanchel. Have a great weekend.